How many of you went out on Black Friday to do some gift shopping on, on that day? How many? All right. Now ask me downstairs, a little bit more upstairs. How many of you, this is kind of adventurous, how many of you went out on uh, Thanksgiving Day, the day that they had before? All right, we had some people who did that. Yeah. Kind of interesting how our culture has gone to that. That's really what we're going to be talking about a little bit here today, of what our culture is anticipating for us. Um, You know, you just open up the newspaper and you read articles. I I did so this last week on what happened on Black Friday. It's a little scary, to be honest with you. Um, uh, In Illinois, it says a driver outside of Coles was shot um, by a police officer after a confrontation happened on that day. In New Jersey, a man was pepper sprayed and arrested after getting into an argument at a local store. In Virginia, two men were arrested after a stabbing in a fight over a parking space in Walmart. Uh, in Las Vegas, a customer who bought a big screen TV at Target was shot in the leg while walking back to their apartment complex. In Southern California, there was a fight over someone cutting in line that ended in a confrontation. Uh, I remember reading an article a number of years ago um, about two men, I'll just read it to you, in Southern California at a Toys R Us store nonetheless. Two men pulled guns and shot each other to death in a crowded toy store Friday after the women with them started a bloody brawl, says one witness. Goes on to say, one woman suddenly started punching the other woman who fought back as blood flowed from her nose. The man who was with the woman um, being punched pulled out a gun and uh, brandished that. You know, can I just stop right there and say this? We live in a sad society when a kid's store becomes a battleground for a shootout, right? When you have a 45 in one hand and a Barbie doll in the other. Just does not make a lot of sense, does it? There, there is a problem, there is a systemic problem to a society of people who say, I love you so much that I will die for the cause of buying you a Christmas gift. It's wrong. It, 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 it's not understandable in many ways, but our emotions get to us. Maybe our envy, nature, envious nature comes upon us. And while most of us here, I hope, would never be uh, starting a quarrel or a, or a um, stampede or even a gunfight, certainly we can see in our society um, that we have implanted those ideas that you can put a price tag on love. I mean, think about that, that, that parents buying toys for their kids, maybe going further in debt or having to go out and fight crowds or be someone who they probably should not be to get an ob- and obtain something, or just thinking about, even if it's a peaceful exchange to buy a certain gift, to think about what that may transfer to the child. And, and, and hear me on this. I, I, I think gifts are great. I think they're wonderful. I think it's fun to exchange those, but we need to be careful of what the culture expects of us and what the culture puts upon us. Now, the culture instructs us that you need to do this for you to have a good Christmas. You need to buy this for your children to enjoy this or your grandchildren to enjoy Christmas, to be a great grandparent or to be a great parent. And in many ways, we become colored by the culture. And so what I want to talk a little bit about today is the culture that Jesus entered into this world because Jesus overcame the world. Jesus said, yes, I'm in this world, but I am not of this world. And for many of us, we are in this world, but we subtly have become of this world as well. When we think we have to buy, when we think we have to get, when we think we have to purchase, when we think that Christmas has to be filled with all those kinds of things. Now, hear me on this, please. 
If you have bought something for your pastor, bring it on, all right? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. In fact, I got a gift here today. Thank you, Jolene. That's wonderful. Thank you. I got a shirt this last week. Man, that is great. I love that, all right? However, I know those gifts are filled with love. I know those gifts aren't putting you, you know, farther and farther and farther into debt. That's how we want to give. And I'm going to be talking today about giving in a special way, giving relational gifts as well, considering what those might do for blessing other people. So, you know, let's look at the world that Jesus entered into. Matthew chapter 2. Because the world Jesus entered into um, was a little bit like the one we have today. I mean, it was a busy place. It was a scary place. It was a place that had leaders that were exhorting their, their, their rule over people and putting them underneath their thumb. And the main one that we're talking about here is the uh, person of Herod. And today we're going to talk about what he did and who he was in the culture because I want him to be more than just this figure in history. I want to bring him to life and show how he controlled so much of the culture. And so Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 reads like this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was, what's the word there? He was what? He was troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him. Now, it's interesting. When a leader becomes troubled, when a leader becomes paranoid, as we're going to be talking about today, what it does to the people living in that culture. That's what leadership does. Herod was the leader here. He was troubled when he heard of this. And all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, For it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. And from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Verse 7 says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. And don't believe that for a second, right? Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You can read through that passage and you see that Herod is mentioned at the beginning. You see Herod is mentioned in the middle. You see Herod is mentioned at the end. You can see Herod's thumbprints all over this text. You can see Herod's thumbprints all over this country, this culture as well. 
And as the story follows on, the Lord uh, visited Joseph in a dream and tells him to escape with Mary and Jesus into Egypt because Herod was going to go on a death march looking for anyone who would come in his way of being the ruler and being the king. And so uh, to truly understand what's really going on in that text, I want to give you a little history lesson. Today we might get a little deeper into kind of the historical culture and the context. But again, I want you to understand what it means because we read some of these Christmas stories and we hear them at the Christmas time, but we don't truly understand and put maybe emotions and thoughts and feelings and flesh onto some of these characters and some of these people that Jesus interacted with. And that controlled the lifestyle that the Israelites lived in and in Jesus as well. So we're going to look today and see how Jesus interacts um, with Herod along with his ministry. So if you have your outline, why don't you take that out? It says green with envy. You saw we read a few verses on there. Let me answer the, um, the box here. What type of person was Herod? Because I think this is very important to the story. The first one is this. Herod was a puppet of Rome. Understand that. Herod was just a puppet of Rome. He did what Rome wanted him to do. In fact, you'll see a a map up here behind me for just a second, in just a second, where all the known world was under Roman rule. In fact, it was commonly known that from England to India, Rome controlled the world. Now, to have this kind of a um, ruler, it was interesting that you had to have good leadership. And so the first leader was Julius Caesar, we've heard that name before, who uh, ended up not uniting Rome as he had tried because I guess he was too busy inventing salad or something else like that. I'm not quite sure, but take that word word you want. Um, But he did have a son who was uh, Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus was able to unite the known world under Roman rule. And uh, this is a statue here of Caesar Augustus for the life of me. I do not know what that little Cabbage Patch doll underneath him is. But uh, maybe it's his mini-me or something like that. I don't know. Um, But for them to rule as they did, you had to have good rulers underneath you. And so Caesar employed a fierce warrior named Herod or what, who was known as Herod the Great, uh, to rule on his behalf over the eastern part of the land, over the eastern part of the world that, that um, controlled the jurisdiction of Israel. Now, Herod was a, a fierce warrior, and he took power, he says, by the will of God. But we know that Herod simply massacred the Jewish people, and that's how he came to be in power. And when he did... Throughout the land, he began to build these statues and these altars and these inscriptions to hail Caesar, to bow before Caesar, and which was really a kiss-up sort of thing to do. I mean, you know what? I'm going to be here, ruler. I'm going to make sure that you all um, are going to be bowing the knee to Caesar so that I can stay in authority here. Now, think about this. You have statues, you have altars, you have inscriptions to bow to Caesar. Does that go over very well with the Israelites? They had gotten the Ten Commandments. And the second of those commandments said, you shall not bow before any idols. You shall not worship anything except the Lord your God. That does not go over very well. And so Herod is aware of this. And what he does is he becomes, the second thing I wrote down, a very paranoid ruler. He becomes a very paranoid ruler in how he rules. He tries to control every aspect of civilian life. 
You think it's interesting today what we hear about our politicians and trying to control people and bug phones and search on the internet and seeing what people do and kind of this idea of big brother. Herod was all over that. He wanted to control. In fact, so much so that it was commonly known that Herod would dress as a civilian and go into the marketplaces and overhear conversations. And if he would hear a conversation that threatened Caesar or threatened him, that person was never seen of again. And if you were a Jew, you probably knew someone who was murdered by Herod at this time. That's what kind of person Herod was. Very paranoid. Herod had um, 10 or 11 wives. I think he lost count somewhere in there. Um, He had 43 children. So he's a very busy man. 43 children that were credited to him. Uh, He became very suspicious of his wives. Uh, A few of his wives had them executed. Uh, Drowned another son because he thought the son was planning to plot against him. Drowned him in the family pool. Uh, One time he brought two sons to him because he had heard, again, very paranoid, um, that they wanted the kingdom. And so there are actually some speeches that are recorded of these sons, these gut-wrenching pour their hearts out before their father kind of speeches. And father said, nope, be off with you, done. Killed them because he, was thre- he thought they were threatening to take his throne. Now we understand why, right? When Jesus was born and he hears he could be a king, even though it's maybe a king of the Jews, that he wants to come in and take him out because Herod is a very, very paranoid leader. Let me give you a third thing, though. He was a puppet of Rome. He was also a paranoid ruler. But the third thing that's very um, relevant to our story here is that he was also a person of prestige. Herod was a person of prestige. and what, In fact, whatever Herod did, he did loud and he did big. The palace, in fact, at Masada is a perfect example of this. Legend has it that King David hid out in a rock outcropping at Masada when he was running for his life from King Saul. You remember the story um, when David killed Goliath and he comes back from being now a warrior and the crowd starts to cheer for him more than for Saul. And Saul becomes very jealous about this. And so running from Saul, David runs up into these hillsides up to this place at Masada and he begins to live there for a while. In fact, it's commonly known that Psalm 18 verses 1 and 2 was written while David was here in this place. So here's now the ego of King Herod. Remember, King Herod is now in the New Testament. Saul was in the Old Testament. He knew that Saul lived in this place. And so King Herod decides, uh, King David lived here as a refugee. I will live here in luxury. And so he builds this palace up on top of Masada. You can see the different levels up here. Uh, Maybe you can't see that very well, but you can see some of the runes of what um, Herod built up there, using it as a fallback in case his country is attacked. Remember what I said? I said, whatever Herod does, he does loud and he does big. And so Herod inside there, as they have now discovered these runes, has a bathhouse um, built up on top of this place, and um, it's warmed by either coals or embers or water, hot water that's pumped in underneath um, the tile uh, to warm up the bathroom that he has in there, uh, a heated floor. Um, Herod was, in fact, way ahead of his time. In the 1960s, archaeologists have discovered um, one of Herod's storerooms where he had already figured out how to preserve dates and figs. 
This is now archaeologists discovering this some 2,000 years later. And so they come upon these preserved dates and figs. And so they unwrap them and they eat them. And I would guess they probably spent a little bit of time in Herod's royal bathroom after they did that. But um, just, just a thought there. Uh, Herod, um, again, is wanting to please Rome. And so he built a whole city called Caesarea. If that's not kissing up, I don't know what is. Well, let's call it Caesarea. The name Caesar comes from that. Let's build it. Let's name it after him by redirecting some of the coastline and the marshes. And in this area, which they now have discovered, they've discovered auditoriums where you can sit down or stand at the bottom and literally hundreds of thousands of people can be seated up above and you can speak just in an audible voice and the balance in there is so perfect that almost everyone in there can hear the voice. This this culture that Herod created was was beyond um, uh, palatial. Um, In fact, story has it that in Caesarea, um, he was traveling back by boat, looks up on the hillside, sees the city and discovers and sees, well, it's not shiny, it's not bright enough, it's not beautiful enough. And so he orders marble to be put on the facade of the building so that when uh, the rulers of Rome came, they could see it shining. And even today, you can go there and find some of those bits of marble washed up on the shoreline um, because of what Herod did. Now, what's interesting about Herod is that outside of the Jewish culture, he was seen as a great ruler. He was seen as a great leader, a very impressive leader. That's what the culture expected. In fact, he built a mountain. I'm going to show you a picture of this here. This is an aerial view of this. He builds this mountain up and puts another kind of palace in the midst of it. It's called the Herodian. Uh, In the midst of this is a a pool. There's a gazebo in there as well. Remember, everything Herod did, he did huge, he did loud, right? And so this Herodian kind of dominated the countryside. Herod is in it all for himself. In fact, this next picture here again shows the aerial view of this place where he lived. Let me show you the the straight-on view of this now. As the Jewish people would live, here's the mountain that he has created. And they know that he has a palace up in this area. This is where he is. He's, he's, he goes big. Now, think about this. Don't we also have that kind of society today? Where people want to go loud, they want to go big. Where people want to buy, 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 and spend, 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 and impress, impress, impress. Don't we have that kind of society today where, just like Herod, you go bigger, you get better. Capitalism says get all you can, can all you can get. Consumerism says spend, 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 be happy, happy, happy. And it's hard. It's hard to live in the society that we do and not be impressed. I mean, you look at the iPods and the iPhones and the iPads, you see the commercials and you see, you know, you go on new car lots or maybe someone else buys a new car and you smell the new leather smell of a new car and you think, wow, you look at fashion statements and clothing and those kinds of things. It's hard not to get caught up in some of that. And yet, I'm not saying that that's wrong. It becomes wrong when we bow the knee to it. It becomes wrong when we go excessive with it. It becomes wrong when we think more about that than we do the world Jesus came to live for, to die for, and for us to live in. It becomes wrong ever so subtly. And when we get sucked into the culture, the Herodian culture, much like Jesus lived in, we have to intentionally pull ourselves out of that and say, I'm aware of what's going on around me. We have to ask the question, Are we living for Herod's kingdom? Are we living for the kingdom of Christ? 
How do you how do you live in a culture without bowing the knee to Herod? How do you live in the culture as we should bow in the knee to Christ? Because in the middle of this culture that Jesus was born into, we see a baby born into a little town of Bethlehem, which at that time was a little town. Today it's not. My wife and I were able to go there a number of years ago. Bethlehem is not just a little town. It's a town of hustle and bustle now. It's grown. It's a a town of, of modern convenience and such. We have it in our mind's eye what it's like, but it certainly is not that way. And Herod ruled over all this, and he becomes disturbed when he hears that a new king is born. And so Herod says, this is not about him, it's about me. What do I need to do? What do I need to do to preserve myself? And so we see how Herod confronted Jesus and how he tried to deal with his problem. What I want to spend the rest of my time on here today is looking at how Jesus confronted Herod. How Jesus dealt with Herod and what Herod's culture and society brought about. That's what we want to look at. I think there's some lessons that are involved in this. And so what I want you to do, if you would, is turn over to Luke chapter 13. And in Luke chapter 13, I'm going to read this in just a second. We're going to see how Jesus begins to interact with Herod and what he does. See, Jesus spends the majority of his ministry with Herod in the background. And the lineage of Herod's. Now, we discover shortly after Jesus is born, Herod dies... But his son comes to power, and so it's his son that Jesus most often interacts with in his ministry. This is Herod the Tetrarch, um, uh, son of Herod the Great, which I showed you. Herod the Great was when Jesus was born. Herod the Tetrarch was was there when Jesus was in his ministry. Uh, Jesus was thirty between 30 and 33 years of age. This Herod is the one who beheads John the Baptist, a cousin of Jesus. This Herod is the one whom um, John the Baptist spoke out to. Remember, these Herods are very paranoid people. And so when John the Baptist speaks out against Herod, stealing his brother's wife, which was a no-no at that time, still a no-no here today, eventually John the Baptist gets beheaded. And the disciples take the body and bury it. And it says in Matthew 14, 12, that then they went and told Jesus. So we see Jesus having kind of this indirect connection with Herod. And so let me just give you a couple of points that I wrote on my outline. The first one is this. Jesus is very aware of Herod. Jesus is very aware of Herod and what he does. And of Herod's power. Herod had just knocked off one of his relatives. We we don't often think of Jesus maybe as being uh, political or being aware of politics and such of the day. But he was aware. He was aware of what was going on. In fact, look at the passage I told you. Luke chapter 13, verse 31 and 32. It says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, that's Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now that's an important piece of information to know, Right? Herod's after you. Herod's coming for you. Herod wants to kill you, Jesus. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, which, you know, coincidentally, we still don't know what the fox says, but we know what Caesar says. Okay, all right, yeah, you know, all right. All right, I was going somewhere with that joke, but we'll just leave that one there, all right? Okay. Go and tell that fox which is not just an 80s term for being sexy, right? It, it's, 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 he's crafty. He's ruthless. That's what kind of ruler he is. 
Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course, predicting his resurrection that he's going to have, kind of subtly predicting that before uh, the Pharisees who are worried about Jesus and what's going to happen here. See, Jesus knows that he's going to die a political death. He knows he's going to be sentenced to death by Rome, and so he's very aware of the culture that is around him. Likewise, I guess uh, transitioning this into where we're going to go here today, um, we need to be very aware of the culture. We need to be very aware of how the culture kind of impacts us and influences us. See, this is where not a fan meets Christmas. This is where the call to radical discipleship meets what we do and how we act. What would it be like this year not to get sucked into Harold's world of being bigger and better? What would it be like this year to not get sucked into buy, buy, buy and spend, spend, spend and being envious of people if we don't have what they have and seeing, well, it needs to be to this level. We need to have this happen. We need to have this. this the culture expects us. Of course we do this because that's what the culture expects. What would it be like this year to intentionally give And maybe as we give, 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 it's not out of having to spend, 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 but maybe it's out of giving of our hearts. Maybe it's out of giving uh, uh, in other ways that won't hurt, but it maybe even hurts our pocketbook in a very positive way. What if it's giving to people who really, really need it to make a difference? I mean, and I'm not going to share here today, you know, this is just, you know, spend a little less this year because my pastor encourages me or my church is encouraging me to do this. But what this is about is being very aware of the culture that we live in and intentionally not following it. This is about making an intentional choice of saying, I'm following the call of Jesus, not the call of Herod. I'm following the call of Jesus and what his culture is creating in my heart, in our lives, and not the culture that the world expects of going out and running up debt so that we can try to impress people we don't even really care about. How does that look? How does that look for you? What would it be like if you did things differently? Let me just give you a couple of thoughts here. I remember hearing a number of years ago of a couple who got married. They were in their mid-30s, and so they were a little further along when they first got married. And they felt like they had enough things going on. So what they said was, instead of the wedding gifts coming to them, they said, would you make a donation in our name to a local charity? Heard about another gentleman who uh, was in retirement, and he had paid off his, his mortgage. And so he decides, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the same money that I was paying for my mortgage, $1,500 a month, and I'm going to donate that to wells that will give good, clean water to people around the world to make a difference in their communities. I don't know if you read this article last week. I think it was in the Stockton Record of a man who works as an administrator in the local school systems and decides his last year he's just going to not take a salary. He's just going to give back and say, you don't even have to pay me. I'll do everything I was doing before, but you don't have to pay me. What would it be like if you continued to work at your job one year past what you normally were going to and gave that money to bless people? to bless your church, to help pay down the debt that we have in our children's building over here, to help finance something that would just make a difference in the city of Stockton. What would it be like to give differently, to do things differently instead of being controlled by how the world says we're supposed to do it? In fact, I'll show you how aware Jesus was 
of Herod and all that he did when he's challenging his disciples' thinking. It says in Matthew chapter 17 that Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives, and and we kind of have this picture in our minds of the Mount of Olives, and he's overlooking this mountain. You can see this mountain from the Mount of Olives, and you can also see the Dead Sea. And so when Jesus talks about if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Maybe Jesus is saying, you need to contradict the culture of Herod. You see all that Herod has going on there? You can just do away with that when you have the faith to trust in what I would have for you. In fact, Herod, what you are doing is nothing compared to what We can do when the kingdom of God comes in our hearts and our lives. Jesus confronts this. He's very aware of what's going on. I mean, what would it be like if if you got involved in doing some things with family or friend? Just yesterday, we we had an incredibly busy day around here. And one of the things that I was so blessed to hear was that Pastor Pablo, um, the Spanish church, took a group out um, uh, to go to the Spanish church. In fact, Pastor JC, our youth pastor, went with him and spoke to the migrants, uh, 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 immigrants at the immigrant camp, migrant camp that is out there, and uh, shared Christ with them. The second year that they've done it, they took 100 love boxes, all the love boxes that Pablo's church um, collected, they were going to take out to the migrant camps and bless them and share with them. What would it be like if we did more of those kinds of activities and more of those kinds of giving examples and experiences? What would it be like maybe if you came down and helped serve with the breakfast club as we have down here on Saturday mornings and they just give and want to bless people on the streets of Stockton? What would it be like if you discovered ways in your own neighborhood to bless people who needed help? Maybe it's yard work or some widows or watching one another's houses or homesitting for them or, or, or just doing things differently that blesses them so that you don't have to try and spend, spend, spend to try to impress people that really, are you really wanting to impress them anyway? What would it be like if you didn't get caught up in the Herodian kind of culture that Herod sets before us and that our culture really sets as well? See, Jesus was very aware of Herod, but let me give you the second thing that um, is such a truth here that we see in Scripture. Jesus chose to ignore Herod and his ways. Jesus chose to do things differently. Jesus chose not to have his world be interacting and be controlled by what Herod did. In fact, if you skip over another 10 chapters in Luke, go to Luke chapter 23. Let me show you how Herod and Jesus interacted and what Jesus did. Luke 23 has it where Jesus is before Pilate, sentenced to be uh, crucified. And it says here in Luke 23, verse 7, that when he, that is Pilate, learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at this time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see him, uh, to see some sign done by him. Do you get the the context of what's going on here? Herod's like, oh, I've heard about this, Jesus. Come on in. Be a sideshow for me. Show me some signs. I hear that you perform miracles. I hear you do these wondrous kind of acts. Would you show me some, Jesus? Almost in a sense mocking him because he knows now that he's being tried as a common criminal. And so Herod's kind of wanting him to play the song and dance. So it says in verse 9, so he questioned Jesus at some length. 
But Jesus did what? Made no answer. He made no answer. It was almost disappointing, I think, for Herod not to see Jesus do some marvelous little signs. There were zealots at the time of Herod who um, were radicals who made their views known by being protesters or picketers, or they would probably be ones who would bomb abortion clinics of today. Yet Jesus didn't decide to go that way. Jesus was silent. Jesus chose to ignore Herod. So let me ask, what would it be like heading into this Christmas season if you chose to ignore the culture for just a few days? What would it be like if you just got offline and didn't watch television as you normally do, didn't surf the internet or the web, or didn't channel surf, and just said intentionally, I'm not going to go there, I'm not going to do those things, and use that time instead of getting sucked into the Herodian culture to get kind of soothed into the spirit of heaven and heaven here on earth, which is really what Christmas talks about. Not to be ignorant of the world, but to ignore its plea of doing the song and dance. See, that's what Herod was wanting for Jesus. Perform some miracles. Do some things for me. Show me. Entertain me. The world says, do the little song and the dance. The world says, go into debt. Make the kids happy. Give them toys that they won't even care about you know, next week. And again, hear me on this. I'm not trying to be the Grinch. All right, I'm in green, but I'm not the Grinch today, all right? I'm not trying to say don't. I'm just saying let's do it a little differently. Let's be wise. We, we can still bless our kids with some of those things. We can still bless our grandkids with some of those things. But let's do it differently where we give more intentionally and where we celebrate just a little bit differently. Where we say, you know what, Herod? I'm not going to play your game. What if Christmas this year became more about um, celebrating with one another and giving your presents? yourself to someone instead of just presence. See, Jesus stepped up and said, I'm not going to play that game. And, and again, I'm not suggesting you don't go shopping, but at a minimum, at a minimum, perhaps, what if you bought one less gift and took that money and blessed somebody who you know really, truly needed it? Maybe someone who wouldn't have blipped your screen on a gift, but this year you do so. And you give it in the name of Jesus. See, let me brag you up as a congregation. You, you guys have got this with our Thanksgiving dinner. And we, we say, hey, Thanksgiving is coming. And you come out of the word work, hundreds of you being involved. You do all the food boxes. You do all the turkeys. You volunteer. We serve over 1,500 people. Folks, you, you got that culture. That's what we want. You look at the caring Christmas tree, and in two weeks, you took a little under 500 ornaments off that tree, and you're bringing those gifts back so that you can bless people. That is so awesome to see. As a congregation, we are getting it. Here's the next step, though. Do we get it 12 months out of the year? Do we live it that way with our entire lives all 52 weeks of the year? Or do we just get into the holiday kind of spirit? Maybe, maybe this year, at this Advent time, you use it as a symbolic gesture to do things differently as a symbol of what you will do differently throughout the entire year. Maybe it's the relational giving of, as I said, your presence of you instead of gifts or presents that you bring to someone else. Maybe even the Karen Christmas tree gift that you have. Maybe you'd like to even deliver that. 
to the person who you bought it for. I'm sure Mark Turner would be blessed to have you come alongside. In fact, he said he needs a couple of people with big trucks or vans because usually they have bigger ones that can do that to take it to the group home and such. If you have that, come, call us at the church office and let us know if you have a big truck or a van who would be willing to deliver some of these gifts. I remember hearing about a family who said, hey, let's, instead of buying gifts for one another that we don't even remember, let's exchange services for one another. Services such as you know, washing one another's car or babysitting for one another or, or you know, giving haircuts, that is, if you know how to cut hair, right? That, that would, right? Instead of buying those gifts that you don't remember, another family said, let's come together and let's bake cookies instead of going out and spending and shopping. And again, those can be wonderful memories and wonderful things to do, but do them with purpose. Do them with, am I just doing this because it's what the culture tells me to do, or am I doing this to make a difference in someone's life? I remember hearing about one uncle who uh, had a computer program that he knew how to make a comic book of his niece and nephew, and so he took their images and kind of created them and put them into a comic book. How many kids would not love to have something like that rather than another game of Hungry Hungry Hippo or whatever you, you know, they're going to buy for you, Right? Again, it doesn't mean that you don't shop and that you don't give. It just means that you do it differently. And I'm not even going to give you a one-size, cookie-cutter-fits-all kind of thing to do. I think it's for you to talk about. I think it's for you to pray about. I think it's for you to come up with those kind of ideas. Um, In fact, I have out in the Welcome Center just some ideas for relational giving that kind of bring up some things about spending time together and doing those kinds of things, babysitting for your worn-out sister-in-law, yard work for an elderly person in your life, car maintenance to change the oil in a friend's car if you know how to do that, uh, house projects, help them build something, Um, You know, something that just brings you together. In fact, my wife and I talked a little bit this year about having a little bit more relational gifts for our kids, something that we do together as a family rather than just an item. And I can't tell you much more about that because my son's right here and I can't tell you what that is. But you can talk to me after Christmas and hear kind of some different things that we're going to do. And and, and again, let, let me just give you that thought. Are you spending just to spend? Are you spending just because Herod says that's what you're supposed to do? Are you doing the song and dance? Or are you truly involved in the meaning behind it and the gift giving and the love of yourself or your love rather than just the things? Let me share with you one closing thought. I think um, any Christ follower uh, is probably a little ticked off at the Herodian culture and the way that our culture has gone and taken Christmas out of the culture. We've heard the terms, we've talked about it for years, kind of this war on Christmas where Christmas is no longer used. It's all happy holidays and, and those kinds of things that are now in stores and business, businesses and etc. Uh, in fact, I love some of the creative um, uh, responses to some of those things. I remember hearing a number of years ago where um, a family was coming up with this idea of any time they got a catalog that said happy holidays instead of merry christmas on it they would say merry tossmas and toss the catalog in the trash can as a way of saying okay we're not going there we're not doing that thing and you know again you can decide if you want to do that with local businesses and how you spend your money and that kind of thing but let me let me just offer you this and i shared this last year at our christmas eve services when we think of all this, when we think about the happy holidays compared to the Merry Christmas and such and the wording that's used in there in stores and such, I, I just want to remind us that a Merry Christmas is not Walmart's story to tell. It's our story to tell, right? It, it's not their story to tell. They have just hijacked the Advent season in a Herodian type of way to capitalize on your spending, 
I mean, do you really need someone telling you Merry Christmas when you're getting an elbow and a face and a jab going for the last Xbox, right? No. It's not their story to tell. I don't go to Target for a spiritual experience, all right? It's not their story to tell. That's what we do here. That's what we do in here. That's the Christmas story. That's where it comes alive. I mean, you even look at our culture and how it has gone from the Christmas holy days, which it used to be called, now to a Christmas holiday. Even the word has been kind of changed around. But that's for you to decide how you deal with that. That's for us to say, God, it's not the culture's story to tell. It's my story to tell. It's my story to live out. It's for me to be different. It's for me to approach this in a different way. It's for me to have a different kind of a mindset to say, God, I want to do this to bless you, and I want this Christmas season to be a wonderful one where, yes, we give, yes, we bless, because that's a fun part of what we do, but it doesn't change my bank account. It doesn't make me go into debt. It doesn't cause me to be stressed. It doesn't cause me to be green or hectic with envy because I have to outgive, give, give. It's a place of saying, God, how would you have me do this differently to honor you? Because the true meaning of Christmas is what Jesus did for us, coming to this world so that he can come into our hearts and to keep that as a central focus in all we do this Christmas season.